Hello and welcome to Scale Up with Nick Bradley. Another week and another awesome interview for you. And this one in particular is a first for the podcast. So you may remember when we launched this new season of the show, I mentioned that I wanted to have amazing conversations with a broader range of guests. Well, this week signifies the first world-class athlete on Scale Up with Nick Bradley. And you can probably tell I am very, very excited. Now, many of you know that back in the day, I used to like a bit of long distance endurance running, an easy 50K, 50 miles, 100K, 100 miles, (laughs) that sort of thing. Well, today's guest takes that conversation to another level. Actually, I would say it takes it to another galaxy. You see, Zach Bitter, today's guest, isn't just a marathon runner or an ultra marathon runner. He is the world record holder for the 100 miles. Yes, I said 100 miles. Now, his record time is 11 hours, 19 minutes, and 13 seconds. To put that in perspective, if I can be very vulnerable for for a minute, I run 100 miles in just under 24 hours. So he is over twice as fast as me. In addition, right, get this, that's approximately four sub three-hour marathons back-to-back, which is quite honestly insane. That consistency, I think, and being able to do it at a high volume is just probably conducive to really develop that like lower end kind of intensities that you're going to end up racing at when you get into like distances that are 100 miles and beyond. Zach's passion is to help people from beginner to advanced runner regardless of their starting point in lifestyle. So whether you are just getting started or looking to build on your past experiences, Zach has has dedicated his career to helping people realize their goals. And this is why I wanted to have him on the show. Doing your due diligence and fine tuning things along the way as you suspect that things aren't quite optimized, then you know you make some slight tweaks and you make it individual to you. And then I think that's when you kind of find your sweet spot. You know what? There are massive parallels between what you achieve in business and what you achieve in other areas of your life. So I want you to sit back, listen intently, be inspired, One conversation heard at the right time can change everything. Welcome to Scale Up with Nick Bradley, Zach Bitter. Hi, everyone. It is Nick Bradley here, and welcome to Scale Up for another week. I am going to try and curb my enthusiasm a little bit for this conversation today, because for those of you who've listened to my podcast for the last few years, you know that I am a dedicated runner, endurance athlete, amateur at that sort of thing. And today, I'm absolutely delighted to have on the show someone who <laughs> takes the world of endurance to a totally different level, and that person is Zach Bitter. Welcome to the show today, Zach. Yeah, thanks a bunch for having me on. So, uh, you know, to where, where to start with this, and I was thinking about this before having the conversation, um, I'm just going to go right in. You've got world records for the 100-mile distance. And correct me if I'm wrong, right, 11 hours, 19 minutes, 13 seconds. For the now, you, tell me if I'm wrong. That's that's the hundred mile track, or is that the um, treadmill? <laughs> so that was hundred mile. I did it on a track. It was uh, the outright world record for all surfaces up until late April. Someone uh, uh, ran just underneath that. Uh, so I've got some work to do to try to get it back. I guess. <laughs> ah, well, well, to make you feel better, I do a hundred k's in about that time, right? So there you okay. go. So you, you're putting another forty miles. <laughs> <laughs> on that um just incredible mate i mean and and you know because i've been tr- i've been following your stuff for some time the the world of, of ultra running is relatively tight um how did you get into this i mean what was the inspiration initially that you know got you into doing firstly athletics but then into endurance sports like this yeah it was kind of an interesting path forward because i was both entirely ignorant but also semi-informed i guess at the same <laughs> right. time when i came to ultra marathon it was uh I, I was aware of the sport at a fairly early age. I like in high school, my cross country and track coach talked to me about it. And he had mentioned, you know, Dean Carnassus, who this would have been back in like the early two thousands. There you go. Yeah. Yeah. There's a story behind this. We'll get into later. If anyone listening, by the way, we put this on YouTube as well. I'm holding up a, a book by the, what do you call him? The Godfather. Yeah. He <laughs> definitely main, he, he mainstreamed ultra marathon running in the United States. I think, most people would agree with that uh, in uh, kind of the probably early 2000 to late 2000 up to about 2010. He was like 
the person, you know, you were seeing, if you, if you didn't know anything about the sport, chances are, if you heard about it, it was going to be something that Dean was saying or doing. So a lot of folks my age and who got into the sport around 2010 uh, had him as somewhat of a point uh, that book and then born to run, I think was another one that created a pretty big wave for mainstream to kind of get familiar with the sport, learn about the sport, get excited about the sport and then maybe dip their toe into it. And, uh, so I kind of had that in the back of my mind, but, uh, I was, uh, you know, I was a high school track and cross country runner. I wasn't overly serious about running, even though at the time I maybe thought I was, but I was you know, probably running 20, 30 miles a week had done maybe a one year where I ran or trained in any specific way year round. And, uh, didn't run in college my first year, but then when I transferred to a school that had a track and cross country team, I thought, well, if I'm going to be here, I may as well see if I can get on the team. And when I was good enough in high school, I made state my senior year in track and cross country. So I thought like, you know, ch- chances are I can at least walk on to, to a division three school team if, uh, and, and make some friends that are runners. And regardless of whether I compete or not would be, uh, kind of besides the point. So when I met with uh, the cross country and track coach at the university of Wisconsin, Stevens point, he kind of laid out the, the framework of kind of how the stuff, how everything worked. So at that point in my career, I was, I had somewhat forgotten about ultra marathons. I wasn't really thinking about it or doing one for, for that matter. But by my, I want to say it was either my junior or senior year of college, I read Dean's book. Um, <laughs> okay, right. What, and, what was the first, what was the first event you did or the first, I mean, the first, first time you ran what would, I mean, the definition of an ultra, they say is what over a marathon, right? But to be frank, mm-hmm. you know, a decent distance. When was the first time you did that? Yeah. So I jumped in my first 50 miler at the end of 2010. Uh, I had actually been just kind of looking at what races were available, thinking I'd probably find a marathon to train for or something like that. And yeah. uh, ultimately, like it was, it was actually kind of a bit of a surprise. I didn't even realize that there were any ultra marathons in Wisconsin. I was living in Wisconsin at the time. So I came across this race that was like within an hour's driving distance of where I was living. I was like, man, that maybe I'll just try it and see what happens. And my first thought was I would do it, probably form some opinions about it, but likely not do it in any structured manner again until I was in my thirties. I was about 24 at the time. So uh, doing it and kind of going through everything that it, you know comes with a 50 mile run was a pretty eye-opening experience to me. So I, I, I knew I was going to probably chase some ultra marathons a little sooner than that. Uh, How did you go in that first race? Uh, I won it. So that was definitely a reinforcing. <laughs> <laughs> I knew that you were going to be a humble guy coming on this show, Zach, but you know, when you, I haven't even gone through the whole list of stuff and I'm not going to embarrass you, but like showing up to a 50 mile race, had you ever trained at that distance before? Had you just gone out in the backyard of Wisconsin and done 50 miles in one hit or did you just show up and just run the thing? Uh, I mean, I was pretty well prepared as far as I could be in terms of what I knew at the time. I wouldn't say I pre- prepared I like specifically to the degree that I do now, but I definitely had a good buildup. Ironically enough, it was kind of when I more or less stepped away from training for marathon and below distances and I probably put together what would be considered a pretty decent marathon training plan for that 50 miler. Uh, and, uh, yeah, it worked well enough. It was, it needed some fine tuning, but, uh, it, that's part of the fun of the sport, I think is kind of learning like what's going to work and where to position certain workouts and things like that. So yeah, going into it, I went into it thinking I had a chance of winning it, but, um, I mean, it wasn't a, a, a one of the bigger races in the country by any stretch of the imagination, uh, but I was also like fully aware that I'd never run past 30 miles before I had done a couple 30 milers in training and knew that there would oh, like to be some learning to be done. And when, when that's the case, you just don't know for sure. So, uh, I wasn't necessarily going there thinking I was going to win for sure by any, by but just, any, just uh, add almost a marathon onto, onto a distance you've never <laughs> done before. I mean, the, just, just for context, right. A lot of people listening to this show would call themselves, you know, endurance athletes, be that triathlons or marathons and that sort of thing. You know, a lot of people who are successful in business tend to gravitate towards that type of sport as well. But mm-hmm. when you're, let, let's just go into some, some details. So your, what's your marathon time? If you were, if you were uh, cranking out a marathon, what would you do a marathon in? Uh, I've done a bunch of like two thirty marathons okay. like two thirty to two thirty two. Uh, I've done a lot of them just basically off of base training where I just ran a bunch of miles and then showed up to a marathon. I've done a couple where it was a little more structured, but it's, uh, I I definitely feel like I probably left my marathon, uh, potential, I guess on the table. But with that said, my marathon potential was 
probably at best around 220, maybe at the fastest. Um, right. haven't gotten close enough to really go out and say that though. So the thing I wanted to go at here though, which I think is fascinating again, just because I'm a geek into all this as well, is how quickly you can rack up effectively four marathons back to back. Because, mm. like, you know, so if, if we just talk about that for a second, so if you're doing say a 230 marathon, you know, times that out a little bit, that's you know, 10 or so hours, and you're getting 11 hours for 100 miles. So you're you're managing to keep a pace consistent for a long period of time. And that that's got to be something that I mean, how do you do that? And is that something that is something that you think is one of your, I suppose, special talents to be good at this? Yeah, I think it was pretty clear to me in college that from just an enjoyment standpoint, which I think is going to really move the needle on your willingness to put in the work. I really liked the long run. That was my favorite workout of the week. So you know, after college, I basically just went into like volume mode. I was doing a lot of just higher volume, building that foundation and not doing a lot of speed work. And that combined with, I tend to be, I mean, I ironically say this, I'm just now coming off of an injury, but I'm very like injury adverse in the sense that I've been doing ultra marathons for over 10 years now. And I've only had two injuries that have taken a goal event or a goal project off the table for me. So that consistency, I think, and being able to do it at a high volume is just probably conducive to really developing that like lower end kind of intensities that you're going to end up racing at when you get into like distances that are hundred miles and beyond. So I've probably, when you think about, if you think of like a, like a professional marathoner, how they can get up to like their lactate threshold for almost two hours they can get up there and sit there pretty close to that. Whereas the average person is going to maybe be able to sustain about 60 minutes at that intensity. So they've just developed that system so well, it's possible that I've kind of sort of done the same thing where, but just at like a, at a gear lower. So like maybe at my aerobic threshold, I've just gotten so efficient there that I can push like that 640 mid 640 pace for, uh, you know, 12 hours and have it not necessarily cause too much damage to the point where I have a big drop off there. So, um, I think there's a lot of things that play. I think it's also just, uh, I really do enjoy the process of preparing for, for ultra marathons. So that has given me the opportunity to really learn where I'm going to draw the motivation from. And then I've done enough of them now too, where I kind of know what I can get away with and what I can't. So my program is pretty fine-tuned and it gets a lot more predictable as to what you can expect on race day, especially when you're controlling as many variables as I have on some of these track ultras. Uh, so yeah, I think a lot of that stuff kind of adds up. You, you learn a lot about yourself and if you really do enjoy it, then uh, you find, you find good ways to kind of get you to get you to the finish line as fast as you can. Yeah. Wow. Well, I want to delve a little bit into, into the different specifics around how you prepare for that, um, as well as talk about some of the things you've done around it. But, you know, in terms of diets, um, habits, training, I mean, I understand that you're a proponent of a low carb keto diet. Is that still the case? Yeah. Yeah. I started kind of playing around with low carbohydrate stuff at the end of 2011. So I had just basically done my first full ultra marathon season, I guess you could call it. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I, I, I was curious about it partly because I was just noticing things weren't the same when my kind of day-to-day life as they had been historically. I mean, it was in the conjunction of training for three fifty mile ultra marathons. So perhaps I was pushing, pushing in maybe a little bit aggressively thinking that, uh, I needed to make big interventions, but all I knew at that time is I was new to ultra marathoning. I loved it. I loved the preparation. I wanted it to be sustainable. And it was new enough to me that I was open-minded that perhaps what I had done historically wasn't going to be the path forward in this particular sport, given what, my what lifestyle. Was the, uh, what was the historical? Was it just kind of eat what you want when you want? Uh, no, I was pretty clean with my diet, okay. quote unquote. I mean, you know, that, that word gets tossed around. I think That's sometimes too, that's a little, it, with a little bit of backlash, but uh, I, I went with what is prescribed for endurance athletes. It was, I wasn't eating a lot of junk food. I wasn't eating whatever I wanted. I was very much moderate, high carbohydrate, lots of fruits, vegetables, whole grains, that sort of stuff. Uh, I have the occasional treat, but it was very much the minority of my diet. And, um, and yeah, and I mean, it, it, I can't say it didn't work in college and like post-college for the few years before I got into ultra marathoning, it just seemed to not be as conducive for me uh, at the point when I started doing running ultra marathons consistently. And, and that seemed like something that was worth exploring before altering the lifestyle that I was just getting to love and enjoy. 
And for me, I was fortunate that it worked quite well. So I didn't really have a whole lot of reason to kind of look back after that, other than just, you know, doing what doing your due diligence and fine tuning things along the way, as you suspect that things aren't quite optimized, then, you know, you make some slight tweaks and you make it individual to you. And then I think that's when you kind of find your sweet spot. Yeah, I'm a proponent of that. I mean, there's lots of fads that go around the place. People talk about being vegan and then you read something mm -hmm. about that. And 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 I found for me personally, um, partly because I've had arthritis and stuff like that, anything that drives low inflammation, I'm 47 mm -hmm. now, right? So anything that drives low inflammation tends to be a thing that makes me feel more, A, has more energy and then sustainable for, mm -hmm. for the stuff. I'm still doing quite a lot of exercise, but I mean, not your levels, but but quite a bit. But I found that by just being a little bit more intentional around diet, that has helped me to be, as I said, to be able to do this stuff for longer. Yeah, no, it's exactly what my thought is with that. And I think, you know, for me, it was just, uh, I was having issues staying asleep at night. I was having okay. kind of more roller coaster energies during the day. It felt like I could do the workouts, but the workouts costed me like consistent energy <laughs> and mood throughout the rest of the day. So, you know, you start looking at just the sustainability of that sort of a trajectory. And you think if you're honest with yourself, I think you're like, okay, something needs to probably change here or it's not going to end well for me. Uh, or I just won't be in the sport for very long. And uh, by switching my diet, I was able to kind of improve my sleep quality, improve my energy levels and consistency standpoint. And, and like, just like swelling was another weird one for me. Mm -hmm. And I don't know yep. that this is necessarily something that everyone should suspect, but, or expect to happen for them. But I was getting like a lot more, I mean, there's going to be some swelling, especially after a race when you're running ultra marathons and doing high mileage workouts and things like that. But it seemed like there was just like, it was a lot harder for my body to flush that out as it had been historically. So I'd have like swollen ankles and legs and things like that a lot more frequently. And that seemed to go away quite a bit too, when I reduced my carbohydrate intake and, you know, whether that was related to the diet or something else is, I mean, it could also been that my sleep quality improved and that was what was pushing it out as well. And it's hard to draw the line between, yeah. I mean, but, but I do think there is something in this. And I found that particularly when I've started to change that if I have too much, too much carb, too much dairy, generally mm -hmm. speaking, then that just causes issues. Whereas if I tend to remain as grain-free as possible, still lots of vegetables, still lots of lean meat, then that works for me. Um, and the other thing, you know, I'd be interested in your perspective on this. Um, there seems to be, particularly in the sport of, of ultra running, uh, a lot of people who come in, they make a big impact quickly, but they're not mm -hmm. sustainable. You know, I can think about um, Anton Kropitschka, who's now going off and doing other things. There's quite a lot of people like Hal Kerner probably going to get a bit older, but you know, these are, these are names that I sort of grew up with when I started doing this 15 years ago, 10 years ago, but they tend to not be doing it anymore. What's your view on that? I mean, obviously you want to be more sustainable. That's a goal for you, but mm -hmm. have you, have you thought about this and thought that it's just a really hard sport takes a lot of effort that actually it's go in there and make an impact and then just do the best you can. What's your perspective? Yeah, this is a cool topic and I, we shouldn't speak too soon. I hear Anton's lining up at Leadville 100 miles oh. this weekend. So. <laughs> well, there you <laughs> he's go. He's, he's running in very thick shoes these days. He hasn't got yeah. those New Balance things anymore. No, he doesn't have the shape down uh, New Balance minimuses anymore, I guess. But uh, yeah, so, but I mean, you 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 make a great point. Um, I think like that first wave of talent that kind of came through when I got into the sport or even before, if we're looking at like Hal Corner and Anton to a degree, you saw a lot of those guys kind of have some of them had decently long careers, but uh, I mean, I was Scott jerk had a very mm, long yeah. career. I would say uh, um, Hal corner probably had a decently long career as far as sports careers go there. And there were certainly tons and tons of guys who were more of a flash in a pan. were like, Oh wow. Like, you know, top three at Western States now, like two years later, no one knew what they were up to anymore. And there's a lot of that. And I think that was just mostly, with that first wave of interest in the sport where, you know, people were getting themselves in a position where uh, there was some, there was some not only like good races that were high caliber kind of getting attention that they could do well at, but these opportunities were popping up for, you know, traveling internationally to races, or even if it wasn't internationally, like going to some cool spot, like on the other side of the country to do a race and someone else is going to pay for it and all that stuff. And, um, I think that got pretty enticing. And since the sport was kind of on the uptick, if you were into the top of the podium on some of the decent races, you could probably show up to eight, nine, 10 races a year and win or podium a lot of them. So there was a lot of incentive, I think, for folks to kind of 
take advantage of all those opportunities and not necessarily like pass on a few in order to maximize a, a couple. I think that's what we're seeing different now. So I do think we'll probably see some maybe lengthier careers since uh, you're going to, I think people have learned a little bit. They'll always be the flash in the pan folks who get a little excited and can't help themselves. But I think there's going to be a bigger cohort of guys and gals who are like, all right, these are the two or three races I really want to nail this year. Maybe I'll do some other ones, but I'm going to be totally cool getting beat by people who maybe I would normally beat or running an hour slower than I know I could if I just went out there and laid it down. Uh, or maybe I'm not even going to taper for this particular race and just treat it as a long run and that sort of an attitude, um, which is kind of how I looked at the sport for the most part, not necessarily by design early on, but it kind of just happened to be that way. And now that I've kind of gotten a position where I can build my schedule around training and racing, I very much look at it like that, because if I want it to continue going well, I think that's probably the most sustainable way to do it. Yeah. And there seems to be, and I say this with respect, there seems to be a a massive shift in the professionalism of it. So when I was first following it beforehand, people weren't getting paid or getting serious Mm -hmm. sponsorships. So therefore, you know, the idea that you had to have a job and then you trained and, you know, you, you probably weren't taking it as seriously as you can now, certainly from a dedication of like, I'm now 100% focused, this is my career, certainly for this period of time. And then you've got that compounded by the fact that everything blew up five years ago, let's say, and now there's more people trying to get into these events, just changes the paradigm of it. So, mm-hmm. you know, from your standpoint, I take it again, to draw on your routine and your habits, you know, this is what you do, right? You know, I, I take it, this is the main thing you do. So, you know, it's it's both work and pleasure. So you're taking it seriously on both counts. Yeah. Yeah. And the other interesting thing too, I think that helps with that is being a professional ultra marathon runner, isn't just training and racing for the most part nowadays. Mm. Uh, and when it first started, I think the way you got a sponsor's attention was you went out and you won eight races in a year or something like that. And then everyone's like, Oh, well, this person's in the magazine every month. This person is on the podium every, you know, every, every few weeks I open up a results page and there they are sitting on the top. Let's throw our logo on them. And that's how you kind of got a contract. Whereas as the sport has grown, so has a lot of other outlets like podcasting, social media, and things like that. So if you can kind of leverage your race results into also having kind of a public facing platform, that's going to allow you to reach a lot of folks within the sport. The sponsors look at that as a huge value add too. So now, instead of having to race eight, nine, 10 times a year and do well to get the sponsor's attention, you can peak for two or three races, do well on those, but then also have, you know, like an educational component to your lifestyle that you're sharing with people who want to kind of see what you're up to. And then the sponsors love to see that as well. So I think the sport as a whole, as a professional, although there's more levers that you probably have to pull as a professional athlete in order to make it work. Um, it's probably more sustainable physically <laughs> because yeah. you can kind of look at it through. I don't have to necessarily rely only on race results any longer. No. And you start to build it, you know, a personal brand around what you're doing as well. Cause you've got your own podcast. It's the high performance outliers. You've got a whole heap of media stuff that you're doing. Do you find that that's challenging though? Cause I mean, I take it, you know, you've got to manage that. As you said, the brand piece is important. The sponsorship piece is important, but then you've got to get the time into, to have the effort to train. Mm-hmm. Do you enjoy all of it or is it, does it feel like a means to an end? Some of those other areas. Yeah. I mean, there's definitely, I think a balance there. Uh, I don't mind it that much. I would, I really love podcasting. I think that was my first entrance into kind of like public facing type stuff for the most part was going on podcasts. I really liked that outlet. Uh, it's always kind of been my favorite piece of the puzzle, so to speak. Uh, the other side of social media has been a lot harder for me to probably kind of get behind and embrace. I've definitely gotten into it a little bit more as I've learned kind of how to maybe use it authentically and put, put like the same type of message I'm trying to do with podcasting, which ultimately my goal there is just to be kind of open and share my experience and, uh, kind of you let people know. I mean, that's partly the education background. I think I stepped away from a teaching career mm-hmm. to do this. And part of me was hesitant to do that because I didn't really enjoy my job, but it was just, it came to being a thing of like, we we're kind of just talking about now, just like, how do you get all this stuff into a day and still make it high quality enough where you feel proud about it at the end of the day versus having so many things going on that you're kind of just like suboptimally doing everything. And I find that, uh, to fill that void a little bit, like rather than trying to hide what I'm doing in training, hide what I'm doing with my nutrition and 
all these things, it's easier just to kind of put it all out there. And if people have questions, they can ask if people want help with their training and racing, they can reach out and that sort of thing. And, and, uh, so when I look at it through that, it's a lot easier to do. Um, but you know, it is got its, its difficulties too. you know, if you're going to be doing a big race and there's some media behind it, then, you know, you, there is a, like, there's a lot of activations and things that, that, you know, sponsors want you to do. And, and that you want to do as well. Cause you're thinking of your, your own business, right? Like if I have a good race, it's like, it behooves me to be active on social media, to be responding to comments, to be going on podcasts, to be putting out my own podcast in order to, to leverage that success point. So you also have this scenario where if you're not going to race eight to 10 times a year, and you're going to focus on maybe two or three big races, if you have a good race, you got to capture that, that moment too. So yeah. it does kind of have, it does create a lifestyle. I would say that does have these kind of like big kind of like boil up points around those particular events. Uh, but I think it's just like, it's like anything you get used to that. You plan your schedule and your life around it and you go in, I think when you go in knowing you're going to have to put in a certain amount of work and a certain amount of expectation around something, then when you end up having to do it, it's not nearly as bad because you went in expecting it versus kind of getting slapped in the face by it. <laughs> I get it. Is, is there a bigger vision and mission behind what you're doing? Um, I would say like a lot of it kind of comes along for the ride with what I want to do in terms of just kind of discover what I'm capable of. Mm-hmm. And that has evolved, I guess, more or less over my career. I think when I first kind of got into ultra marathons, it was like competition was the big driver. Uh, it was something where I wanted to prepare and go and race and see how I measured up and things like that, chase records and stuff like that. And Uh, those are still motivating to me, but ultimately I think like when I think of just like when I run my last race, how will I be, will I be satisfied or not satisfied? I mean, being satisfied to me would be, did I, you know, get every last bit out of myself, regardless of whether that comes with records and race wins and that sort of stuff or not. So that kind of is a big focus that then the other stuff kind of comes in with it then. So if that is kind of my process or my mindset, Now, how do I build those other things like my coaching business, the podcasting stuff, social media activation, things around that drive? Uh, I find that kind of talking about that and sharing that in the process gets the people interested in seeing the hows and whys and the questions get asked then. And then it brings in the other piece that I find incredibly fulfilling, which is just like, you know, helping someone else kind of go on their journey. Uh, sometimes it's people that are just getting started. Sometimes it's people have been doing it for a while and they're like, all right, I want to take this more seriously. I think something Zach's doing could be useful. I want to learn more. And that kind of like interaction with the community is an incredibly fulfilling thing. And I think that's what someone in my position is probably trying to set themselves up for long-term is there'll be a day where I'm no longer running fast races and competing. Uh, so then what's left. And, you know, if I have enough of a platform, so to speak, built that, I can still help other people kind of as they're going along their journey, whether that's just finishing middle of the pack, front of the pack, then I'll have a lot of fulfillment kind of left within, within the sport. So I guess like if there's like a long-term trajectory goal and, and game type of thing, that would probably be as close as I could describe it at this point in time. Oh, it's well articulated. It's good. I mean, you, I, I wanted to see how much you thought about it. I do <laughs> want to kind of get into the mindset piece because one of the things I like to do is just understand what makes people tick and also how they're motivated to do stuff. But the question before that is, you know, in the success you've had to date, you know, in terms of, you know, it's just some incredible times. Have you surprised yourself, you know, or do you go into this going, you know what? I'm not surprised at all. In fact, I've rehearsed this. I visualized this. I'm absolutely on it. Yeah. I would say that the thing that has surprised me the most has been just like the, the mental psychological development through this. Um, whether it was warranted or not, I think the physical aspect of say running 1119 for the hundred mile wasn't something that I couldn't ever wrap my head around. In fact, I probably thought I was, well, not probably, I definitely thought I was going to do it sooner than I did. <laughs> uh, the interesting thing I've learned is like where the psychology and the mental side of things kind of rolls into that. And my first real big exposure to that was in 2013 when I went to the desert solstice track invitational to chase the American record for hundred miles, didn't even know what the 12 hour world record was. I didn't even know there was a 12 hour world record. And I remember my mindset at 90 miles was that I could not run this lap. It was on a 400 meter track. So like every lap I could see my split. 
And I remember looking at my splits thinking, okay, if I, if I maintain this pace, I'll break the American record by like six or seven minutes. And I'm like, I can do this, but I cannot go a second faster per lap. And uh, then the RD came over to me and mentioned to me that there was this 12 hour world record that if I finish hundred miles under 12 hours, I should probably keep going because I'm on pace for that one as well. And I just remember this, like, it was weird. It was like, I had this more or less this, like, uh, I don't want to call it a burden, but this, like this goal or this weight on you of this is my goal today to chase this hundred mile American record. And there was just so much mental energy spent on thinking about that for 90 miles that when I was introduced to another target that was fresh, new, that hadn't been just pinging at my mind for the past 10 hours, <laughs> it was like, whoa, this is cool. And I ended up speeding up like four seconds a lap or something like that for a while. So it was, uh, and, and you know, I ended up going about 12, 13 minutes under the American record for a hundred mile. There's, some, there's something in that though, Zach. Mm-hmm. I mean, just to, again, to, to dive a little bit deeper into that. So what, what do you think happened? Or, I mean, you may not be able to answer this because it's more of a kind of a deep question, but like you'd already said to yourself, I couldn't go any faster because you mm-hmm. were on pace to achieve what you'd set out to achieve that day. And then someone came along and set a different challenge. And all of a sudden you could call on more to be able to achieve mm-hmm. that. What do you think happened there? I mean, again, I'm just curious about how you think about things to then be able to drive that performance. Yeah. I mean, it definitely highlights pretty drastically. I would say just like the limitations we put on ourselves through our mind versus what our bodies mm-hmm. are actually physically capable of. And, you know, there's, there's a a limit probably physically, well, there's certainly a physical limit, but, um, getting to that is pretty rare. I would say if even doable, uh, I mean, I, I, I've jokingly said in the past, the day you reach your physical limit is the day you literally die as you're crossing the finish line. It probably is though, isn't it? It probably is that point where, what do they say that like a a dog can eat itself to death if you put so much food in front of it. The same thing. If you, if you didn't have any constraints on us stopping as, Mm -hmm. as humans, we would probably do something that would end like that for sure. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's kind of interesting where there's always this kind of this quest to be as mentally strong as you can get away with in order to like push your body to the limit you can reasonably expect it to do. And I mean, that's a big driver for me. And I think that highlighted it early on that, that that's kind of like shortly thereafter, my mindset maybe shifted a little bit about kind of like how I should view success in the sport. Um, because of that. And I mean, you have other scenarios too, where it goes the other direction where you feel like, okay, this is, this is going badly. I'm spiraling out of control. I need to cut my losses and drop out of this race. And then like, you know, you drop out and then a day later you're like, uh, did I really leave it all out there? Or did I just kind of like give up because things weren't quite as ideal as I expected them to be. And then, you know, I found myself bailing out on it a little too early and you get enough of those experiences. And I think you start thinking about these things. And if you allow yourself to really process it, then it really does highlight the mental side. Um, for me, that kind of led to just a process that I think works really well for me, where there's this really difficult scenario with ultra marathons, which I think is the big thing that separates it from races like the marathon and shorter is that you just cannot realistically do your race distance and training sustainably. And in a way that's probably going to get you at the best point at the starting line of the event you're targeting. So you're in this position where when you're towing the line for a hundred miler, the last time you really worked through the mental and physical paces of that thing you're going to do was last time you ran one. And in a lot of cases that may be six plus months before, and that's hard to do when you don't have that kind of dress rehearsal type scenario, like you can build into like a marathon or shorter training plan. So what I started doing was when I will have long runs and when I'm getting say four to six weeks out from a race, I use those strategically for mental work as much as I do physical work. And I'm visualizing what it's like to run the last 30 miles or the last 35 miles or whatever happens to be of a race. I'm working through those paces. And then when I get to the race, it feels a lot more like I had done it already in the short term versus trying to like reach back to the last successful hundred miler I had. And that seems to have worked really well for me in terms of punching through that block that you hit around 70, 80 miles. A lot of times in a hundred miler where you've got a lot of miles on your legs. And even though you've got the majority of the race done, you still have 20 and 30 miles is still 20 to 30 miles, no matter how you, how you look at it. So, uh, 
that's been a very useful tool for me to kind of break up the race itself and not find myself hyper-focusing on the entire thing when I should be kind of blocking it and focusing on segments of the race versus the entirety of it. Yeah. And do you, and do you get some help with that? You know, when you first started to think about the mental game of this and, and visualization, did you get a mentor or anything to help you with that? Or was that something that you just sort of studied and, and started to teach yourself? Yeah, I, I sort of stumbled upon it a little bit. I, I'm guessing, I mean, I've probably heard people talking about mindset, mental practice and dress rehearsals in your mind and things like that. I can't pin it to any specific person, but um, I mean, I listened to so many podcasts, <laughs> chances are it wasn't an original thought. Uh, the, the, where it clicked for me though, was when I was, I was doing a, a when I, I was doing long runs and I, I remember I, I, I had been doing this a, throughout my career, but not consistently where, you know, how every once in a while you'll have a run, you'll be doing, let's say a long run and your mind just goes to like, you're visualizing what a successful oh, yeah. end of a race would be. And I remember thinking about that once on a long run and realizing like it just kind of clicked in my head. Why don't I do that every long run? Because it's just it seemed to be much more of an enjoyable experience than just trying to like think about whatever happened to be the poignant topic of the day or whatever. And and when I started doing it consistently, consistently versus just letting it happen when it would happen. So I guess maybe the way to think about it would be like, I think everyone gets into like a flow state or like a meditative state on accident from time to time. And then you get these folks who really like appreciate what that is. And they're like, I'm going to learn how to self induce that. I'm going to learn how to put myself into a flow state. I'm going to learn how to meditate so that I can get into a meditative state and draw that feeling on command when I want it versus just having it happen randomly and hoping it happens at the right time. That's kind of the same thing I ended up doing with the long run stuff was I started like intentionally putting myself in those positions. So I just had more I could, I could structure it and then I could have more of them, I guess, than I would have maybe on, on accident in the past. I'd go as far as saying, Zach, that it's a superpower to be able to do that and you can train for it. Right. And the ability, the ability to be able to, you know, as you said, put yourself into a flow state when, you know, you're in pain or Mm -hmm. when there are other challenges, you know, can then get you to operate at a different level. Um, I've studied a bit of this stuff. I do transcendental meditation and things like that. And the more you practice that, the more you can put yourself into a position where you are just very present. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, anything that's kind of like immediately causing concern, you can distance that. So it's a bit of a strange way to describe that. But if you're in that situation in a, in a race, for example, you know, you've got the focus, you've got this, this, this flow state. You've also been able to kind of almost silence some of the pain to be focused on what you're achieving. Then your performance at the end is going to be better. Because one of the things, just to sort of draw a line under this part of our conversation, you know, you're, you're doing a lot of this stuff on tracks, right? And, and I know mm-hmm. you've done that. I've seen your treadmill stuff. Um, the, I mean, you underappreciate the mindset. I mean, to, to get on a treadmill for 12 hours, how do you prepare? I just want to get you the, the focus. How do you prepare yourself for something as tedious as that? Yeah. I mean, the treadmill was definitely an interesting one for me. It <laughs> deviated a much further from what I thought it would from the mental psychological part. I mean, my thought going into that was, well, I've done a bunch of these hundred milers on a 400 meter track. How much different can it be on a treadmill? I've already pretty much fine tuned the, you know, the process of dealing with monotony. Um, And it was weird. It was just like, I think it was somehow, I mean, there's a connection there between the physical aspect of running in a controlled environment and the mental connection there. And the way I've been looking at it was when I'm on a track, I still have that same ability to kind of like micro adjust my pacing, even if I'm not paying attention to it. You know, if I look, if I could break down my pacing every like 10 feet versus every like quarter, quarter mile, then I would probably see like a bunch more, like, I mean, it'd be like a sawtooth still. And all those little micro adjustments, slowings and pacings are just things that I'm doing to kind of subconsciously give me a sense of control. Like I'm choosing to do this. I'm the one pushing myself forward. Whereas when you're on the treadmill, it's all response. It's no, there's no proactive part to that other than you adjusting the pace on your own. So it puts you in a different mindset or different mind space where it wears on you differently. Whereas on the track, I feel like I can get into like that flow a lot easier because I do still have that sense of control. Whereas on the treadmill, it was just 
it was just eating at me a lot more as to like, I'm being told what to do by this machine. Why am I being told? This? <laughs> You're like a cyborg. Would, would you yeah. do it again? Would you do a treadmill like that sort of length um, sort of uh, events or that type of competition again? Yeah, I'm somewhat on the fence about it because I didn't have an ideal buildup for it in the sense yeah. that I didn't appreciate the variance in psychology enough. And I mean, it was last minute in the sense that I had bailed out. Oh, I didn't bail out. All Every event got canceled. It was This was like in May during the beginning of the COVID wave. So the, 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 the track hundred miler I had been planning on doing got canceled. And I was like two thirds the way through my training block for that. So I was like, not too keen on bailing out on that work. So I just pivoted towards a treadmill hundred miler instead. Uh, so the draw to do it again would be, I know I could do it much, much faster. I, should, I actually think the treadmill is probably the fastest environment to run a hundred miles on because you can control so much. Well, you can just jack the speed up, can't you? Mm-hmm. I mean, <laughs> it's a bit yeah. like, it sort of pulls you along, but mm-hmm. I just, again, appreciate the fact that if I jump on a treadmill for an hour, I get, I find it's boring as hell, but to do yeah. it for like 11, 12 hours, man. So yeah. So the intrigue is the intrigue and the, the hesitancy are essentially the same thing where the intrigue of, fine tuning that so I can do it better is big, but the drawback is then I have to go through the process of preparing for it, <laughs> which means I'm probably going to spend like a lot of long days and stuff on a treadmill to get to really iron out how to get past that, that mental block that I described. Uh, and I'm not sure it's like, it was like, I could see it happening, but it would, it would maybe need to be a unique situation where I had like, you know, two or three months where there really wasn't anything ideal to prepare for other than that. So it was like this or nothing versus the normal landscape where if I decide to do a treadmill hundred miler in three months, that's coming at the expense of a bunch of other races that might be more enticing. So uh, that's kind of where I'm at with that one at the moment. Yeah, got it. And you've got, (laughs) I mean, again, correct me if I'm wrong, but you're planning, I, I assume it's still September, um, it depends, I suppose, on things opening up in the US and whatever, but from running from San Francisco to New York, is that yeah, still, so still in play? That, that's something that's been, that de- has developed a little differently over the last few weeks. I actually yeah. um, aggravated my right ankle during a t- training simulation. I think it was probably about four or five weeks ago at this point. And I woke up the next morning and it, it, it was kind of weird because I've busted that ankle running technical trail in the past. And it's bothered me on that type of terrain in the, in the past, but it's been manageable. Uh, it's never been an issue when I've trained for flat stuff. So prepare, or I shouldn't say flat stuff, like controlled terrain, like concrete, hard surface stuff, non-undulating. Um, so I didn't think it was going to be an issue at all uh, preparing for an event like the transcontinental run. But after one of those training simulations, it was starting to get a little a little tighter. I could feel it a little bit near the end of the run, not anything to be super concerned about, but the next morning I woke out and it was just blown up and couldn't bend it even for like two or three days after that. So I ended up going and getting an MRI done on it. And it turned out there was a couple partial torn, uh, uh, ligaments down, on down underneath kind of like my, my heel bone on both sides. So that's why I was getting all that inflammation and swelling in there was because those, it was just much easier to push those weakened, areas to the brink where then the next day my body was the body was like just hyper focused on recovering that area compared relatively compared to say my other ankle so i had to basically kind of shut things down for a bit just to let the swelling and the soreness run out but then also let that area kind of heal up and and kind of find a path forward so uh this was all kind of during what was going to be my peak kind of build up for the transcom um so, you know, I talked to the team and the transcon is very unique in that, and there's a team involved in any of these races I do, but the, 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 the trade-off of having a bad day versus a good day, isn't necessarily going to impact their life and their goals and stuff all that much versus I asked someone to help me out for a six to eight week project. And then I bust my ankle three weeks in and can't finish it that's a big ask for someone. So knowing I was going to be going in suboptimal to do it more or less took any record attempt off the table. So then it just became a question is, is it worth still doing it at a lower capacity? So I could kind of manage the ankle along the way, instead of pushing myself 12 to 14 hours a day in the running side of things. And 
uh, talking to the team and the charity that I'm doing it for, everyone was basically on the same page. Like, Hey, this isn't something you have to do this year. This you're 35. Yeah, you, you don't have to be 35 to run across the country. In fact, you could be quite old and probably do that at, <laughs> since the pace well, is so you, much I mean, I've known you for 40 minutes more or less, but um, <laughs> I, I assume that if you're going to take on a challenge like that, you want to take on the challenge, right? So, I mean, what is the record to get across, across the uh, United States? Yeah, it's uh, six weeks, uh, or I should say 42 days, six hours and 30 minutes, which comes out to just over 72 miles a day uh, by Pete Kosselnick. So, I mean, it's a stout record. I think Pete is just like uniquely good at that type of stuff. I mean, he's run from Keys, Alaska to the Florida Keys, self-supported, so pushing a stroller. So Alaska at, to Florida. Yeah, it's like 5,000 miles. Wow, diagonal. Uh, yeah, <laughs> mm-hmm, all by himself, pushing a stroller and he averaged over 50 miles a day. So he's really, really good at that stuff. So like, I, I, I think even minus the ankle going into this project, I'm very aware that, you know, Pete's record is not something to take lightly and it would likely take a very, very well put together, dialed in almost as perfect as you can expect on something like that, uh, uh, project. So, um, you know, having that big of a bar to try to get over, if I want to have that record on the table as one of the goals is something that, that definitely needs to be, needs to be, uh, is I, that I, I got to get angle straightened you, out before. <laughs> no, I was gonna say, you got to get yourself sorted, uh, injury wise, but mm-hmm. is that something that is important to you though? So, so like, you know, mm-hmm. for example, would you, if you didn't think it was a possibility, it's like, like you were saying beforehand, you could probably go and do it, you know, early next year and get across the country in whatever time frame. but mm-hmm. I take it, would that be interesting to you? Or do you want to at least have the chance to go for it? Yeah, I'm definitely going to do it at some point. It's been a, a project that I've been interested in fairly early on in my career. I just hadn't really necessarily had a good uh, a good trajectory for it in the sense that I didn't know like the whys necessarily other than I thought it was interesting. And since I've got, gotten to be good friends with a guy named Justin Wren, who has the charity Fight for the Forgotten, which was something yeah. that really was, his message just really rang home to me. So uh, I kind of found the why over the last few years, getting to know him. So I'm going to do it. It the, the the big question mark that I have, as well as anyone who's probably followed along on this type of thing is like, what is my ability to get myself physically in a position where I can go across the country at a pace like Pete did versus just getting across the country. So, um, you know, that's something that like, the more time I have to work on, the clearer I can probably make that in my own mind, as well as just like on paper by putting in maybe some multi-day races or something where I have a real good chance to kind of test out like how my body feels over the course of three to six days, kind of running at that volume versus going for like a hundred mile in one day and then spending the next week barely doing anything, which is kind of a different type of a kind of a process yeah, it's, more it's, or less. It, does, it sounds a little bit different to what you've done previously as well <laughs> looking, yeah, looking so, at your resume here yeah and that's one of the other things that was uh you know one of the other i guess silver linings about not being able to do it when i wanted to originally was you know for something for a project this big rarely is more time gonna be a step back from your potential and performance. Oftentimes you end up just learning things you wouldn't have learned otherwise. And you get a little more fine, finely tuned. It, it is one of those things though, where I could sit here for the rest of my life and nitpick that route and I would never fine tune everything. So there is a line, and this is a topic that I got really interested in when I was talking to folks, because I had done a really probably pretty deep dive over the months, just kind of like prying into people who've done this, people who've supported it, people who have done it themselves to just get an idea about what is the expectation here? What do you plan for versus what is something you just have to like not worry about and manage as it comes. So there is that point too, where you can almost oversaturate yourself with potential concerns. And at a certain point you have to be like, okay, here is the list of things we need to control and stay on top of that. We just can't make a mistake here. And if we want things to go really well, and then here's a list of things, and there's going to be more that we don't know that will pop up along the way that are going to be manageable, but we just have to be prepared to execute when they happen, if they happen. So it's kind of a balance there too, from a, this would be more of like a mental stress or a stress management thing of like having enough stuff accounted for 
that you don't end up with a broken down RV somewhere in Nebraska. <laughs> but no, I can also, imagine that. Yeah. The, yeah. the logistics of these things, when you see these like fastest known times and stuff like mm-hmm. that, the big ones, the logistics for me are the thing that really astound me. Because mm-hmm. you're right, yeah. to get it right, you know, there are variables that are going to come in, like weather or whatever else, or things like that, that you're going to have to, you, know, you can't really control that. You can try and predict the timings as best you can, but you've got to have a certain degree of luck combined mm-hmm. with preparation to be able to, you know, as you said, to crack these records. Yeah. Well, that's just it too. Like I could go out there, be perfectly physically ready and execute the physical aspect of a transcontinental project and then have a bunch of storms hit me through this year as in like have a higher than average humidity in the Midwest and have a weird wind shift where instead of having a tailwind west to east get hit in the face with some wind or something like that. Like I mean, there's a lot of things that you don't know that you can't control that uh, will add or subtract from your finishing time. And I think at the end of the day, you just have to be comfortable with that as being part of the process and part of the excitement of something like this, that you just can't control that. And you have to be able to respond and take what you get to a degree. It comes back to mindset as well. Mm -hmm. Well, listen, last couple of questions. Um, You've been generous with your time and I know (laughs) know you're a busy guy with everything going on. Um, what's, What's next for you? So if we think out, you know, what are some of the dream events uh, races you've got planned, maybe some of it you can't share because I know, that, you know, but I'd love to know kind of what's on your, your future resume, so to speak. Yeah, I'm pretty open about this type of stuff. So right now I'm uh, this last week and a half, I've just gotten back into building my running back and I have to kind of do a gradual ramp up so that I don't like re tear or re partially tear, I guess, some of those ligaments in my ankle, uh, but it's gone quite well the last week and a half. So I do suspect I'll be able to do some single day racing this year. So I think my goal will be to do um, at the most aggressive path forward would be a fast hundred miler by the end of this year. Uh, the more conservative path, if I need it, would be to do some fast hundred milers kind of in early 2022. Um, do you have and any races that, that you have any like dream races or ones that you, you know you haven't done before? You thought, you know what, I really want to go and have a go there. Yeah, there's, there's some on the trail side and there's some on the, just the, the road track side. Uh, I really want to get over to the UK at some time and do in London. They actually have a race called the Centurion 100. Where, yeah, I know the guys who run that. Yeah, I've yeah, done a few of their events. They're very well organized over here. So they're very they're great. Yeah, they're great. And I mean, it's really the only 100 mile specific track ultra you can find. Everything else, you're jumping into 24 hour, 48 hour, six day type stuff where. Yeah, yeah you know, just the nature of that is you're, you're, you have like different events going on. So if you're going to be running one of the shorter events, you're just going to be in lane two or three a lot more. So you're going to lose, you know, like for, for my hundred mile efforts to date, I'm probably running more like 101, 101 and a half miles just from the amount of time I spend in lane two and lane three. Yeah. It's crazy. That isn't it? When you think about Mm -hmm. it, it compounds, doesn't it? (laughs) Yeah. So in terms of like goals within that controllable hundred mile stuff for me now, it's more about how can I fine tune the, the controllables even more than I have in the past versus how many of these can I do in order to have one kind of connect? So like that one looks, sticks out to me as an intriguing one to maybe do because of that aspect. The other part is like, I mean, you followed probably the shoe technology the last five years. It's yep. like this year was the first opportunity I've had to, to even uh, compete in a pair of shoes that has that technology in it. So you know, like in 2019, when I ran 1119 for hundred miles, I was wearing just your standard racing flat more or less. So, uh, knowing that I probably have some time coming off of that race, just with the shoe technology is another reason I'd like to put another or execute a few more good quality, high hundred miles, just to see what I can do with that technology versus what I had used traditionally. Um, you know, there's this like semi arbitrary, but, uh, kind of intriguing, like, goal of breaking 11 hours in a hundred miles that I think would be kind of cool. I think it's happening in the next couple of years, regardless of whether it's me or somebody else. Um, and regardless of whether I'm the first one or not, I think that's a, a realistic enough goal for who, me. Who's the would... closest, who's, who you reckon the closest is for that? I mean, well, Jim Walmsley I mean, gets a bit of, a bit, fair bit of press. He's pretty quick on the, tra- on the trail. Jim, Jim would break 11 hours, I think without too much trouble if he uh, goes into the race and executes properly, Jim is not the type of guy who's going to go in and say, okay, let's pace this for 1059. Jim's going to look at it with a lot of detail and he's going to decide what he thinks he's capable of. And that's what he's going to go for. So if you ask me, I think Jim is capable of 
taking a good chunk out of 11 hours, I think he could probably get down into, you know, even maybe under 1150 if he executes well. So Jim would be going for that. Then it would just be a question of whether that was realistic or not. And if, you know, does he, because, because once you start going for your max potential, you know, I learned firsthand, that means you're going to probably blow up a couple of times or you have a chance to blow up. But whether Jim is interested in doing that or not is that is, you know, Jim, Jim has his pick of the lot, so to speak. And I think a lot of times the incentive there for him is probably to do the big races like Western States, UTMB comrades, and uh, um, to, to carve out time to go after uh, a fast hundred mile for someone like Jim is probably going to be like, let's put together an environment that is optimal, like a one mile loop that right, yeah. I can well, hug can the, always... turn the entire time. You can always call mm-hmm. him out on this podcast and then I'll shoot it to him. Right? You can say, you know, you guys are going to meet in a track. You can meet on the Centurion track with the guys there and go for it. Um, yeah. So last question for you. Um, and this is kind of more just for everyone listening in. So they've heard your story. There's a, there's a whole heap of stuff I just want to kind of summarize. You know, from what I've heard, f- first thing, you know, the mindset piece that we talked about is just incredibly impressive, I think. And again, you're a humble guy. You've underplayed some of that preparation, but there's 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 a certain degree of how you get yourself ready for this stuff. And then when you're in there, the way you manage yourself, which is really impressive for me to listen. Then we spoke a little bit about you know impact and legacy and inspiration about kind of why you do what you do. So the, the question for me, right, is people listen to this. What what is it? What is it that they can take away? Not so much about running. I know we've talked about running for the last hour or so, but what is it about you specifically about the way you approach things that you think is different, unique, special. Again, I know I'm calling you out and you're going, oh, I don't want to talk about it. But I, I'm just curious because it's, it's the stuff that gets behind people's mindset in terms of scaling up their ability and their performance that I think is interesting for people listening. Yeah, that's a really good question. I think uh, if there's something that I've learned from running that is transferable to the rest of my life and transferable to anybody who's looking to maybe optimize whatever their passion is, whether that's business, whether that's, you know, a hobby, whether it's a different sport altogether is just about kind of how do you actually break down the process from step one to the final project? It, it gets, I think most people are capable of dreaming to the degree where they're like, this is what I want. I want that. Maybe it's a promotion. Maybe it's, you know, landing a specific job. Maybe it's finishing a degree or, or maybe it's running hundred miles as fast as you can. Uh, that's kind of step one is deciding you want to do it and deciding you believe that you can do it. But where most people, I, I shouldn't say most people, but where I think it's a, a much harder step to take and it's going to be semi-unique and individual to how you structure it is how do you fill in that space between I'm going to start this project and this is my projected end date or my goal date. How do I keep that initial excitement that I had when I first decided that's what I want to do throughout the process, even when it's getting boring, it's getting monotonous, it's getting kind of routine. And that initial upfront wave of motivation starts to fade a little bit. So how do you build in those motivators along the way? And throughout my career, I've just learned like how I want to structure a training block so that I can have these big end goals. I have these career goals if you want to branch out even further than that. But then I also have this, like, this is where I want to be at the end of this block of four to six weeks. This is where I want to be at the end of this particular, you know, two week or three week buildup. This is what I want to be at after this week of training. This is what I want after one specific workout. And when you start kind of scaffolding it to that level, you have all these little reward potentials built in there, both short-term and long-term. And if you can use those when you need them to pull you into what you're supposed to do, then uh, you're going to sense that excitement and you're going to get that, that draw to kind of keep back and keep fine tuning. And the more of those things you're aware of, I just think more exciting the process gets, the less repetitive and less boring it is to think about, okay, I'm going to do this again. I got to get back into the same system or cycle that I was doing before. You look at those things as benchmarks that you can improve on from previous times for ones that you need to catch up on to just get back into shape after taking an off season and stuff like that. Those are all things that I've just added to essentially every time, every time I do a build up to a race, I probably add something where it's like, Oh, that's a cool little objective or goal that I need to build into the process in order to draw motivation and draw excitement out of it. You know, give myself little wins along the way, as well as being mindful of uh, the big picture and all that sort of stuff. So mm, I've boom. taken, yeah, <laughs> I mean, it's a, you, it's you very can, good, man. 
Yeah. And you can scale that into everything. I could scale that into like my podcast. Like, well, what, what maybe my goal originally is I want to get 300 episodes or something like that. Well, that's a great goal. Well, how do you structure a specific podcast in order to make that high quality and motivate you? Uh, how do you like, you know, do you just release one big podcast or do you chop it up into little pieces and do little social media promotions about it? There's all sorts of things you can kind of like uh, put that in, put into that. And uh, running has definitely been the biggest one for me, but other people have other goals that are kind of their primary goals that they can probably really fine tune that on and then uh, scale it over to other things they're doing in life that are, that are important to them as well. So focus, precision, taking action, discipline. You know, mm-hmm. those things. Yeah. Amazing. Very good. All right. Where can people uh, reach out to you? I know you've got the podcast we mentioned beforehand, the, the Human Performance Outliers. Uh, where else can people reach you, Zach? Yeah. Yeah. The easiest spot to find everything is my website, which is zachbitter.com. You can check out my coaching there, the podcast links, my social media handles, training, all that stuff is located there. Probably most active on Instagram for social media, which is just at Zach Bitter. Uh, yeah, um, feel free to check that stuff out and, uh, let me know what you think, but thanks a bunch for having me on Nick. It's been a lot of fun to chat with you and, um, you, I, I love doing podcasts. It's like I said, in the beginning, it's my (laughs) favorite, favorite vehicle to, to chat with when you kind of combine all the different ways to, to, to reach out to people nowadays. No, absolutely. Well, listen, it's been a pleasure having you on the show. I said at the beginning, I was going to be a bit of a fanboy for someone who's an amateur at this stuff. But, you know, I read, I read, you know, Dean's book, you know, 12 years ago, and that inspired me to start doing my, I was sitting on a beach in, um, in Greece and that inspired me to go and do all my marathons and ultra marathons, not to your level, but you know what, just the experience that I've had, the people I've met, everything that I've learned about myself through the training and through the races has been extraordinary for me. So mm-hmm. to have you on the show, to even go into the elite level of this sort of stuff has been an absolute delight and a pleasure. So Zach, thank you very much. My pleasure. Hey, thank you for listening to this episode of Scale Up with Nick Bradley. If you've enjoyed the show just as much as I've enjoyed creating it for you, then I'd really appreciate you leaving a five-star review wherever you listen to your podcasts. And while you're there, why not subscribe to the channel so you never miss a future episode? It really helps me, it helps the show, plus it makes it easier for others to access the content that I'm producing week in and week out. And finally, if you want more information about anything that you heard in today's show, to find out how you can join our community on Facebook or to find out how you can get more help in scaling up your business and your life, click the link in the show notes now.